The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Getting In, a college coach conversation hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. There are so many challenges involved in the college process, including choosing the right college, planning a payment strategy, creating a high school plan, and much more. The team of experts from College Coach are here to help you find some, if not all, of the answers you need. Now, here is your host, Elizabeth Heaton. Welcome to another edition of Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. I am your host, Ian Fisher, filling in for Beth Heaton, who's out this week. I tried to talk about to Beth about getting my name on that intro, but I don't know if that's something that's going to happen. Uh, totally fine. Beth's, Beth is the title title host. Anyway, it's August 25th, 2016. We're just on the edge of Labor Day weekend, and things seem to be picking up speed for students from coast to coast. Here in Portland, it's going to be a 95-degree day, which means it still feels like summer, but I know the fall is just around the corner, and we want to help you plan accordingly. Uh, we've got another great show lined up for you today. In the spirit of the transition back to school, I plan to announce a new contest for our listeners in our second segment today. So if you've got a Facebook page and a regular fan of the show, you won't want to miss that. Um, we'll also be welcoming Beth Feinberg Keenan back to the show to help all you parents of multiple students figure out how to pay for college when you've got more than one kid enrolled at a time. And our Schools Out application workshop series will continue with a discussion of the college interview. If you have uh, one scheduled for this fall or you're thinking about scheduling one to help enhance your application, you won't want to miss my conversation with Zaragoza Guerra. But before we get to all of that, uh, we'd like to continue our series on college access by welcoming Angela Kitaramo to our show. Angela is the Director of Retention at Worcester State University in Massachusetts, where she is responsible for the design, development, implementation, and coordination of university retention efforts, programs, and services. Angela, welcome to our program. Thank you for having me, Ian. It's great to have you aboard. And, you know, this is ostensibly a college admissions program. And so most of the conversations we have on a weekly basis are all about getting into college, how to apply, how to think about your chances of acceptance, how to pay for it. Um, your work is more focused on helping students succeed once they arrive at their college in the fall and set a path to graduate in four or five years. Can you tell us a little about what retention means and why it's important for colleges and universities? Absolutely. Uh, colleges and universities exist to educate students, and we want folks to be able to move through at a pace that allows them to get the credentials that they're looking for and move on with into their, you know, careers and lives. Um, so we measure persistence and retention. So persistence we think about is the student's um, successful transition from semester to semester onwards mm. through to graduation. And that would, after we graduate, you, we would consider that we've retained you through. And uh, we, we give an awful lot of thought to how everything that we do at the institution is helpful and impactful to get students to the finish line. 
Now, you know, when I worked in college admission, I would get questions uh, somewhat frequently from parents about a retention rate. And usually that was a rate where they were thinking about students who finished the spring semester of their freshman year and then returned for the fall in their sophomore year. Um, But are there retention statistics that go beyond just that first year and coming back for the second? How do you sort of think about retention? Is it a four-year, five-year process? Or are most people really focused on that first, first two years? Uh, from the college perspective, we're focused, uh, we give information back to the federal government, and so we're, we are expected to graduate folks within six years. Okay. Uh, but we also do look, so all those things should be public. Uh, at every college that folks are going to, you can go and look at their um, iPads rating, so you can look every, at the first semester rate, exactly like you said, that they completed spring and came back. It's measured fall to fall. You can mm-hmm. see where you are after the first year, second year, and it will tell the number of students in that cohort. And that's that measurement really is just looking at first-time, full-time students. So if we bring in 850 students this semester, we're going to be able to we'll report out every year how many of those original 800 have come, have moved forward towards graduation. Gotcha. So they're tracking all of the students from the original class in any given fall and seeing where they are at, at any point in time in terms of their persistence in the university. Right. And, you know, uh, the five- and six-year conversation I think is really important. You know, a lot of parents, when I used, I used to work at Reed College where – the four-year grad rate was around 68%, the five-year rate was about 75 and the six-year rate was 80%. And a lot of parents would raise their eyebrows and say, oh my gosh, I can't pay for six years of tuition here. But, it, but it's not quite like that, right? It's not five or six years of coursework. Um, how, do, how do we think about the four, five, and six-year graduation rate when we're evaluating a college's ability to graduate students? Absolutely. I mean, you need to think about too, our, what, what is our population of students? You know, so it's, Right. The expectation around those rates for public four-year schools is different than pri- private four-year schools versus two-year schools. Um, you know, so there's, you're always thinking about different populations. And then also you want to consider learning style. You know, if you've got some kind of a learning difficulty, maybe four years isn't going to work for you because 15 credits per semester is too many. You know, so maybe you are in the five-year term and you've decided that going in. Maybe someone said it took them five years because they took a semester or a year off due to an illness. Um, so, you know, that data is not captured in those numbers. You're just seeing the raw number. You're not seeing why, you know, maybe somebody went part-time and it took them six years, you know. Right. So yeah, it's, I had that, a, it's that completion. To get to the 120 credits, that's what they're, that, those numbers report. Exactly. I had a colleague at, at Reed who actually took 10 years off in the middle of his uh, college career. So his graduation time, I think, was 12 or 13 years because right. he went and worked on a farm. and was just a farmer for 10 years, and then he came back to school and finished his education. And so, you know, if you looked at it under traditional measures, you'd say, what happened here? You know, it took 13 years to graduate this kid, but he was doing something else with that time. And I think it's, it's important to understand how those grad years might work when you're evaluating one school versus another in terms of their grad rates. And also, I think the student population is really important, too. And it doesn't include transfers. If if, if you leave my university and go someplace else, you're you're showing up as not completing within those six years. But you're completing someplace else. So just because you're not, you know, it it doesn't account for that for students that have decided that it was not a good fit and they went somewhere else. It also doesn't include all the transfers we accept and graduate here. Right. It's just that original cohort. So, you know, with all numbers, you need to dig a little bit deeper. Yeah, and it's sort of an indication that I think the, the federal government, when they're tracking this, they're looking at a certain type of question, but there are a lot of subtleties in terms of how that question is answered because every student is different as they approach their, their college career. Now, you used to work as a gear-up advisor in the College of Worcester Consortium, and you were working a little bit more with high school students um, to think about how they could be successful when they got to the college level. What are some of the things that you advised 
for high school students from different populations um, to help them be more successful at the college level? How are you sort of coaching them through this process? Absolutely. We always wanted to give them more of a, to be thoughtful about their high school GPA, that we've always found that to be more indicative of their college success than their SAT score. You know, so really, what kind of a learner are you? Are you really challenging yourself? Are you pushing it? You know, what kind of a learner are you? You know, do you, wh- who's your best self? Are you best in the morning? Are you best in the afternoon? Like, really get to know yourself at those high school times so that when you come to college, you're not starting from scratch. You know, I know in my classes all need to be right together. You know, I like to go, go, go. Or, I need, you know, I like to have some time to process in between my classes. Um, you know, do, did you have an IEP in high school? Do you need additional supports? You know, we... It's automatic in high school, but in college you have to ask. You know, so we want to make sure that folks get the support that they need in the way that it makes sense for them so that they can be the most successful. Really lead with their strengths and not focus on their deficits. Yeah, I, this is really helpful to hear. And I think you know, we often talk about college selection in terms of fit, right? Find a place that's going to be a good fit for you. And I think whenever fit is talked about it sort of people think about it as sort of a soft term right where are you gonna like the other people and you like the look of the campus and you just feel comfortable there but I also think there's a sense of fit in terms of learning style engagement and ability to be successful at the college level you have to think about where am I going to be able to be the best kind of student and that requires a lot of thinking about the kind of high school student that you are and the way that you're going to bring that kind of talent and ability to the college level. And what level of support do you need, you know? Do you need to be at a smaller place where the student-teacher ratios are much smaller, or are you an independent learner? Are you totally fine in a classroom with 200 students? Right. You know, is it important that someone knows your name, or is it important that, you know, you get to be on that lacrosse team? You know, like, what, what, is, what are the things that are your number ones and twos, and where right. are you strong, and where are you going to need something, and is what you need available there? And there are going to be trade-offs, right? So you got to think about what your priorities might be. Um, but you ultimately want to find, I think, a place where you can go and, and persist and, and be successful. Now, right. And what's your end game? You know, are you yeah. looking to go on to graduate school? So maybe cost is an option is really important. You know, if I know I'm in this for the next 14 years, you know, cost at the beginning is really important because I know I want to retain my eligibility for graduate school. You know, so it's it's many things. Right, it's looking beyond just sort of where am I getting in and how happy I'm going to be in that moment when I get that admissions letter and starting in the fall as a freshman. But it's really sort of thinking about every year that follows after that, which which can be hard for students, which is why I think parents can be really useful um, as a supporter here. Um, You know, I find that some students have a harder time than others getting comfortable in their new independence and the academic workload's a little bit different. Other students flourish in this new environment. Mm -hmm. What are some of the factors that you see that predict greater success for students at the college level? And how can students sort of try and create those kind of factors for themselves when they go off to college uh, in you know, just a couple of weeks for a lot of uh, students starting as freshmen? No, absolutely. I think it's so important to be honest and to be, look for help as early as you feel like you might need it. You know, there are so many resources on campuses. Everyone's got tutoring and mentoring and there's libraries. Uh, there's so much, but it's not they're not always going to come looking for you. And you shouldn't feel like a burden when you want to go and utilize those resources. You know, is, and think about even the college health services. You know, are you not feeling well? Don't wait until you're all the way full-blown flu before you get some help. Um, mental health issues, you know, it's a, it's a very volatile time for young people. And, 
you know, some communities are more or less likely to reach out for help. Um, and I just, there's no shame whatsoever on a campus about getting help or getting, you know, study skills, time management, I think is a huge issue for young people. You know, when they're not, when you know they're not taking attendance, I right. have all the, I'm only in class for four hours. So sure, I can get that done. But if you don't have a plan, all of a sudden it's midterms, you know, right. so I think. Time management is a huge issue for so many people, whether you're an honor student or you are conditionally accepted. I think everybody struggles with that. Yeah, and I think that a lot of students who had really strong success in high school might find all of a sudden that they're in an environment where they're being challenged in ways that they haven't been before, where they're not necessarily at the top of their class. Um, And that can be really different. You know, how do you ask for help in a situation like that? Um, Right. I, you know, one of my friends from graduate school was an undergraduate um, at Stanford, and, and he talked about this duckling syndrome at Stanford where everybody on the top, on the surface, looks like they're just coasting along, but underneath they're paddling furiously to try and keep up. And there's this sort of outward perception that, you know, everybody else has it together, and so my asking for help looks like weakness when, in fact, everybody's going through the same sort of shift and struggles and challenges and reaching out to ask for help is just a way that you can make sure that you're persisting and being healthy and successful at the college right. level. And it doesn't even mean that you need to ask help to your professor. It could be, you know, your RA. It could be an older student on campus, you know, veterans connect with veterans. You know, find your people and have right. conversations. Um, you know, when we think about folks struggling at college, you think, oh, it's the least prepared. But retention folks will tell you on any campus, honor students are always at risk. You know, they right. have been a big fish in a small pond for a long time, and it, they, they don't have experience dealing with difficulty the way that folks that have always had to push to get that B have. Um, so, you know, it's, I think it's very important to, to expect that it's a bumpy ride and to want your young folks to persist through that uncomfortable time. Through that uncomfortableness will come growth, and they will find their feet. You know, to not be nervous that they're wobbly. We, everyone's wobbly. Right, right. I, yeah, I, I love that. I think you know you don't want to feel like if it was easy, it wouldn't be interesting. It wouldn't be worth going to. You wouldn't feel any change, right? So the 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 challenge of the place and the discomfort that you feel is what allows you to change and grow and become a stronger student and a stronger person. You just you mentioned sort of looking to others within your community for help, you know, might be a teacher, it might also be an older student. Um, Part of the goal of any college is to create community and to inspire values like collaboration and empathy and support. What advice would you give for students who are already in college to help them support their classmates? What can they sort of look out for in terms of, you know, helping others who are maybe having a harder transition to college? I I think it's so helpful to just volunteer. Hey, I see it's course selection time. I, I, I had that professor. Here's something really great. You know, what, what do you wish you would have known? There's, so, there's beginning to be quite a bit of research around peer-to-peer, um, near peers is what they call them. So instead of, you know, if you, information you get from your roommate might be more impactful to you than you get from me. Um, right. You certainly always you want to trust but verify, you know, get some information, <laughs> yeah. but, then, but then check in with the folks that are familiar with the catalog and understand how advising works on your campus, you know, so that you're, you should just feel comfortable. In, and I think just jump in because so many folks don't want to ask the question, but the second you invite someone in, hey, people that have taken this class have struggled. Would you like to come for tutoring? Oh, dear God, yes, I would love some, you know, but they don't tend to ask for it. 
Right, right. And, and I, I think that's absolutely true. And, and I think that's also a good plug for students who are researching colleges this fall, if they're seniors in high school, and they're going out to look at colleges, ask other students, what do you wish you had known? What are some of the things that you do when you need support? Um, what are examples of times that you've struggled? See if you can get a sense for how other people make use of resources. And I think that that can be a really great clue into the kind of academic experience that you might have on a college campus. Yeah, we um, always say pick up the student newspaper, you know, find out what's really going on. Because what's in absolutely. the admissions brochures is very different than what's happening in the daily paper. A hundred percent. The more people you can talk to, the more you can zero in on what the consensus is about life on that campus. And, and I think that that's, that's really, really important. Um, we, we've got a lot of families that listen to the show. I think we probably have more parents than students. Um, I don't know that for sure, but that's a guess. But, um, you know, we have parents who've been to college. We have other parents who maybe haven't earned a college degree. And so their kids are the first generation to go to college. Um, what are some suggestions that you have for families to uh, you know, help create success for their students? Absolutely. I, I, families and college students, because of texting, their students are so in touch with their parents. They can be a huge resource to them. And mm-hmm. I think the thing that's so important in college that's very different from high school is that deadlines matter. You know, if, if parents can get a sense of what the deadlines are, you know, get a copy of that academic calendar. You know, hey, sweetie, it's October 1st. We've got to remember to file our FAFSA next weekend when you're home. You know, understand what the ad drop deadlines are, pass-fail, when is pre-registration coming, is the bill paid. These are things that young people, it, you know, $500, $5,000, you're 17, this doesn't mean anything to you. Right. But, you know, for the grown-ups that are paying the bill or being in touch, those things matter. So, uh, you know, sometimes it's easy for them to forget those details. And that's where parents can be really helpful uh, to make sure that they're registered, their physicals are done, that they're, uh, you know, that minutia that is on the back burner for students. But, you know, if you don't have your physical, you're going to have a hold on your account and you won't be able to pre-register. The freshmen already go last, so now you're not going to have any classes that are really that's right. what you wanted, you know, and it'll so impact that. Yeah, so you, sort of the, some of the support of the logistical side of college. Have you seen some instances where parents can become almost a burden on students in terms of the amount of contact that they're presenting and, and any ideas for how parents can toe that line between being supportive but also encouraging independence? Um, I, I haven't experienced that too much. You know, we're a public institution where a lot of students work full-time, so their parents are sort of, mm-hmm. they're very much used to managing themselves here. Um, yeah. But I think that you know, sometimes there can be a hindrance, and some, some of that is, you know, students have the right through FERPA to say, listen, don't, my parents don't have a right to have any of this information. You know, I want, to ride, I want to drive my bus here, you know, and other occasions where sometimes that's where counseling can be great for students. You know, give me some words, give me some tools to ex- help me explain to my folks what has changed here and what it is that I'm looking for. You know, counseling doesn't need to be for something incredibly traumatic. You know, it could be just I'm trying to figure out how to teach my parents that I'm an adult now and I, I'm not right. who I was when I left here. You know, it's a huge transition, not just academically for them. Right. It's a transition for parents as well, that they don't have their kids around to talk about how their day went. And, you know, I sometimes yeah. encourage students to think about, hey, look, we're going to talk on the phone and we're going to talk on Sundays at four o'clock. And that'll be the time that we call. And during the week, I'm going to focus on my classwork and make sure that I'm connecting with other students. And setting those kind of boundaries can be helpful so that your parents know what's going on on a regular basis, but that you also have time to carve out some independence. Absolutely. We always tell my freshman seminar, I said, don't forget to call your mom. You know, that's my last thing on <laughs> Please, the Fridays. Like, yeah. They, they want to give you space, but they really want to know how you are. Right. Let and for all of you alive. listeners out there, whether you're a college student or not, don't forget to call your mom because your mom would love to hear from you. I promise. Give her a call. Um, Angela, thank you so much for taking the time out of your schedule to join us on today's show. Really appreciate it. 
My absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me. Yeah, definitely. It's, I think it's great to hear more about what colleges are doing to help their students, and, and it's important for families to think about how they're going to support their kids at the end of the admissions process. Getting in is, is really just the beginning. Um, after the break, we'll be talking about paying for college for two or more. Don't go anywhere. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com If you're a parent of a high school student, you've probably heard a lot of scary stories about college admissions, about the growing number of applicants, the shrinking number of spots, about how even valedictorians are being turned away. For families of hopeful college students, it's impossible not to worry. But at College Coach, we take the worry out. Our advisors are former senior admissions and college finance officers from all over the country, so they can give you advice that nobody else can about what classes to take, how to prepare for standardized tests, what options are available to pay for college, and most importantly, what admissions officers are looking for when they read an application. We've got more than 15 years of experience and a track record that's helped every single student get into college, most into their top choice schools. So make the decision to come work with College Coach and start your child down the road to the decision that really matters, the one in the envelope that says yes. Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in. Museums are great places to work and wonderful places to visit, but are they essential? How can we improve our museum practice so that museums remain vital and essential players in society? Listen for Museum Life with host Carol Bossert, where each week we'll discuss timely and topical issues of concern to the museum community. Museum Life can be heard live every Friday morning at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. listening to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to the program. Uh, At the start of the show, I mentioned we'd be launching a back-to-school contest for fall Uh, this fall for listeners of the show. And it started today, about an hour ago. It's an easy contest. All it requires is that you ask us a question about college admissions. So pull up a browser, navigate to facebook.com slash college coach, and pinned right to the top of our page is the contest. All you need to do is comment below the post, asking us a question about college admissions or college finance, and we'll answer it on a future show Each week, we'll randomly select two winners to get a $50 gift card to Amazon, and on Friday, September 9th, we'll select a grand prize winner of a new backpack, Beats headphones, a whole bunch of other swag, and a 30-minute free consult with one of our admissions experts. I see that there are already two great questions that have been posted on the contest, so get your questions in. We'd love to answer them, and we'd love to uh, help you be a part of this this contest. Um, I've been told I'm not allowed to enter. 
Uh, otherwise, I'd be posting my question right now. Um, so get to facebook.com slash college coach. Give us a like and ask us a question. And with that, we are ready for our next guest, Beth Feinberg-Keenan, financial aid expert, who is here to talk to us about how to manage financial aid if you've got two or more in college at the same time. Welcome, Beth. Thanks, Ian. I appreciate it. Now, Beth, I've, uh, I've got two kids who are 16 months apart. Uh, they're still pretty young. Um, you've got two who are even closer in age than that, twins. Um, and so this is a topic that I'm planning on taking careful notes on. Um, for someone in my position with two kids who are close in age, maybe even three, uh, are there things I should consider when planning ahead to pay for college? Uh, can I open one college savings plan to save for all of them? Uh, do they need separate ones? How do I sort of get started? So I think the first piece of advice I'd give you, Ian, is make sure that you are planning for both of them. And um, I think this is my, one of my favorite quotes is, especially when I worked at, you know, a college is, you know, there's no buy one, get one free. Uh, so when you pay for one of your children, you know, you can't use that with another school and say, well, I paid for the older one doesn't mean I get the other one free. It doesn't work that way. So you want to make sure that you're planning appropriately for each of your children and in their futures. You touched upon, you know, opening a college savings account, opening one, opening multiple accounts. Uh, my opinion, I, I really think that you should open up an account for each of them for a couple different reasons. One is you know, sibling rivalry uh, at the point when the kids get a little bit older and they realize that you're saving. You know, one of them, like, hey, Dad, like, why aren't you saving for me? Don't you think that I'll go to college? Uh, the mm-hmm. other one is that sometimes you want to share this with family and friends, you know, in terms of getting some buy-in. Um, having them also help save. I think that it really does take a village to save for your kids to save for my kids to go to college. And I mean, I know that my girls just turned one and at their birthday, I told everybody they really needed nothing. So I asked if they would put money into their college savings accounts. And I think it was a little bit easier saying I had an account open for each of them because they were more willing to gift monies into each of the girls' accounts versus gifting money into one account and saying, well, maybe the other child will get to use it. And again, you know, having twins, you know, they're going to both be hopefully going to college at the same time. With yours being 16 months apart, you know, one of yours is going to be off to college before the other, and potentially you could use all of the money in, one, in that one account before your other one even starts college. So there's, you know, those, you know, those concerns. You also want to think about realistically how much you can save in, in the accounts and you know, so for some higher wage earner families, if you're looking to save aggressively, the monies that are going into 529 college savings plans, they are considered gifts. So you're subject to gift tax rules and regulations when you're putting money into that account in terms of $14,000 is the annual gift amount without having to file a gift tax tax return when you're filing your taxes. So there's a number of different um, reasons that I definitely feel that having one account for both children is, uh, is useful. You can definitely open one account for both kids, uh, but one thing that you have to keep in mind is that if you plan to use it for both of your children when they're off to college you have to make sure that you're changing the beneficiary to the child that you're taking a withdrawal from to pay for their education. A qualified withdrawal from an account is only qualified um, as long as it's being used for tuition fees, room board, um, required books and supplies, but also for that child who's named as the beneficiary. So for Ian, for you, who is likely to have three years of overlap maybe with the kids, yeah. Yeah. You're, going to to ch- yeah. you're going to have to change the beneficiary back and forth quite a bit over those three years in terms of paying the fall bill and then again the spring bill and if your children are going to schools that are quarters or, sem- you know, quarters or trimesters, 
even more often than that. And so there may be some limitations on how often you can change the beneficiary too. Right. And so when I started, I, I did two 529s, one for each. Um, I did consider opening just one because of, you know, transferring between family members is, is fairly easy to do. But it sounds like that there's, you have to make this sort of designation before you do those withdrawals and that that can be a little bit of a headache. Um, are, are there pluses to having just one account? Um, you know, is there a reason that if I had three, four, five kids that I would do one just in terms of maintaining it, maybe it's a little bit easier? I mean, how, would you, how would you sort of cate- categorize the, the advantages there? I mean, I don't think there's definitely any, like, you know, advantages and definitely disadvantages. I mean, I think in terms of what you mentioned, you know, maintaining that account and only having to worry about one account. But, you know, many families may decide to open up, you know, one account with, within the same state. So I know that, like, when I log on to my girls' accounts, I just have to open up one, you know, one website, and I can look at both of the kids' accounts. Right. I guess it's just really personal choice. You know, some families think that if they put all the money in, you know, in one account, that it's going to basically grow a little bit faster just because you have more money in terms of compounding interest. I mean, that may be the case, but then you also think about on the, on the flip side of what's the age difference between your children. So, for Ian, for you having children who are very close in age, and same thing for me having children even closer in age, it you know, really might work for us just because they're graduating so close. But for right. families who have children who are two years apart, three years apart, even greater than you know, four and five years apart, when you're, you're opening up these accounts for your children, how you're investing in them is also a factor. So you, for your younger children, having a little bit more time for aggressive growth and not wanting to invest too conservatively for that younger child, but vice versa, not, ing- not investing too aggressively for your younger child, sorry, for your older child, who is going to be off to college um, a lot, potentially a lot sooner than your younger, than your younger child. Right, right. That's a great um, point because they do those age-based uh, investments. And if you've got kids that are seven or eight years apart, you might want to be a little more conservative with the older kid than with the younger kid in terms of, you know, the percentage of stocks that are being invested in versus bonds. Um, you know, those, those more reliable sort of investments that, that are less prone to grow rapidly. Right. And you mentioned earlier, too, I mean, you have that flexibility of, you know, it is really easy to change the beneficiary. So, you know, if you did need, you know, money from one of your children's accounts because you needed more money for that older child, you can change the beneficiary and draw from the younger child's account and vice versa. If you have more money in your older child's account because you just didn't need it, they got scholarships, whatever the situation was, they didn't end up going to college, you can change the beneficiary to your younger child too. So I don't think it's necessarily going to go unused if you do have multiple accounts, but it is something that families want to consider what works best for them. Definitely. Now, now, a little bit later on down the road, this isn't something I have to worry about just yet, but I think that a lot of parents who are thinking about maybe their seconds going off to college this fall or um, they're going to have two in college at the same time, when it comes time to apply for aid, let's say one's a sophomore, one's a freshman, or one's a junior, one's going to be a freshman, c- can I file one financial aid application for all of my kids or do I need to do separate applications for each one? Well, today you actually have to do separate applications for each of your children. You know, maybe in the future, Ian, when our children are off to college, maybe there will be changes at that time that you will be able to do a family application. Let's work but today on that. It's, <laughs> today it's actually student-driven. So each application is filled out individually for each of your children. But one little interesting uh, tidbit is I volunteer a lot doing um, financial aid, like things in Massachusetts where I live and helping families fill out the FAFSA when it's, you know, when it's time that we run events here in our state. And we get that a lot, that families have multiple children. And at the end, when you 
when you get to the end of filing your FAFSA, one of the questions that they'll ask is, do you have other children that you're going to fill this out for? And you can say yes, and they'll take the parental information and they'll migrate it over to the other child. So parents don't necessarily need to duplicate and enter in all of their information again on their other child's FAFSA, but just the demographic information for that other student. So there are ways around to make it a little bit simple, but unfortunately, I was going to say it is right now that if you have a freshman and a sophomore, you're filling out at least, you know, you're filling out two applications. So I, I fill out two apps. I can probably repurpose the info or there's a way to do a shortcut, but I will have to have two separate applications. You will. You okay. will. Okay. Now, I'm hopeful that you said there's no buy one, get one free, but, you know, I think people are hopeful that there, maybe there's a discount of some kind, right? So, um, you know, is it true that the more children I have attending college, the more financial aid they receive? Um, probably not going to get a, a break where it's helpful to have more rather than just one, but do I get any kind of a financial break? So when you're filing for financial aid, one thing that's going to happen is if you think back to, you know, especially for families who have already gone through the process or for families who are going to be going through the process for the first time, the information that's being provided on the application is being used to calculate what's called as the expected family contribution. It's, an, it's a dollar amount of how much you can afford to pay for college for one year. When that second child is after college or that third child and or that third child is after college, that family contribution is now going to be divided between the number of children that you have in school. So if your original family contribution was $30,000 when your first one was off to college, your expected family contribution will now be split in half between the two children, and it will be $15,000 per child. So the annual contribution still remains the same, but Mm -hmm. your children are likely to have more eligibility for need-based financial assistance at the schools that they're attending. Now, the one caveat that I want to add there is, Families really need to check with what the college's institutional policies are in terms of when there's one more child who goes to college, what happens? Will they offer the student more financial aid or at the point that the oldest is in, you know, the oldest is in school and now you have the youngest child but the oldest graduates, now instead of having two, you have, you're back to one, will that younger child lose financial aid? In my experience, you know, some schools will definitely change financial aid packages that students will lose financial aid or they'll lose need-based financial assistance at the point that an older sibling graduates uh, and vice versa that students will get, could get more financial assistance, need-based financial aid at the point in time that a, a younger sibling starts college. But that's not always the case. There are some schools out there that will base their financial aid packages on that, on that first year. Mm-hmm. So those students who were that first child going to school and maybe didn't qualify for a lot of need-based financial assistance, the school may not do anything when that younger sibling's off to college. But also, mm-hmm. I know from speaking with you know, colleagues that a lot of times there are schools that we've worked at where the aid package that's given to a family where there's two in school at the point that one graduates, they don't take away the student's institutional aid. Interesting. So that base year, that first year when they file for financial aid is a really important year determining what the next four years could look like for financial aid for, for some kids. You think that these differences are significant enough that they might affect where a student chooses to go to college? Is this something that, as a parent of multiple kids, I should be asking a financial aid office before I actually send in the enrollment forms? I definitely think you should. I mean, because, again, these are institutional policies. Right. And if you know that 
you may have to pay the full price, we'll say, the, for the first year, for the, fir- for the first two years, because you don't qualify for any type of need-based financial assistance. Mm-hmm. But in years three and four, when you have you know, two in college, you could get more financial assistance at that time, versus another school that says, hey, no, you didn't get anything the, you know, from the get-go. When you have another one, you, know, you have another one. There's not, you know, we don't have anything appropriated for students at that time. I think that's going to be a huge deciding factor. I mean, who doesn't want free money? And if they can even get a discount for years three and four, you know, that's um, it's going to be so helpful. I was just talking to a family recently, and it was an extreme case. But dad, um, dad was talking, and his son is top one percent of his you know class, and number thirty four in his ACTs, and his guidance department is really pushing him to Harvard. So you know, I was running one of the net price calculators on Harvard's website. Based on one, one in college, they weren't going to get anything. But I know Harvard, Harvard's packaging philosophy is they do meet full need. At the point where he was going to have his brother in school, which was years three and four, it was likely he was going to qualify for some type of financial aid. He was going to qualify for about $17,000. So it was roughly $34,000 discount at Harvard that if they didn't do that, I mean, family would have been on the hook for about $65,000 for four years. Huh. Interesting. That's not something that I'd, I'd known. I'd, I'd never sort of considered that the way that the, the institutional policies might work. That's really important, I think, for families to think about. And they're, they're probably not asking those questions yet. So if you've got multiples, then try and figure out what the aid policies look like at those schools. Um, you, you know, discounts is another thing. You know, do schools offer discounts if you send kids to the same place? Uh, might they say, hey, we've got a second one coming in. We'll give you 10% off, anything like that, or um, any other kinds of discounts that schools offer? Uh, they do, and oh, you're going to find a lot of these discounts on the college's websites. We have a blog, um, so I'll just push the blog. We do have a blog that was written last December about putting multiples through college. We have some of the discounts listed on that blog. But some of the schools that do offer sibling grants are um, Otterbein and Western New England College. They both offer a $1,000 grant when, they have, um, when you have more than one in college. Gonzaga. Gonzaga offers a 10% discount when there are two, to, two in the school at the same time, and they don't have to be multiples in terms of they don't have to be twins, they don't have to be triplets. It could be, you know, in your situation, Ian, that, you know, your oldest starts and then your youngest decides to go there, so your oldest would get that 10% discount at the time that your youngest goes to school. Huh, cool. uh, for families who have three at Gonzaga, the oldest gets a 20% discount, the middle gets a 10% discount, and then the youngest doesn't get any discount. You know, it is important to, you know, look at those opportunities. The worst thing that you're going to find is nothing. Um, some schools you will find these types of discounts might be a dollar amount, it might be a percentage, and some will also be based upon sibling prior enrollment. I've seen that some schools will offer, you know, discounts or scholarships based upon alumni affiliation, and that can even be tied to siblings. It doesn't necessarily have to be tied to a parent or a grandparent who's an alum of, the, uh, alum of that institution. That's great. I mean, that's awesome. This, these are things that I didn't, I didn't know. And before we go, I just, uh, we have one minute left, but I wonder if there are any other outside scholarships for multiples, twins and triplets, uh, that you might let people know about. Or maybe you want to keep that as closely guarded secret. <laughs> I definitely won't keep it a closely guarded secret as long as you don't live in Massachusetts, but just joking. So if you belong to a, uh, a local, a local like, twins chapter, I, I do here in Massachusetts, a lot of your local twins chapters will offer scholarships. I know the one here in Massachusetts offers scholarships between uh, $250 and $500. You know, I don't know anybody who would leave free money on the table. So 
So check with your local chapter first. And then also there's the Mid-Atlantic Twin Registry, and they also keep a a great listing of college scholarships and discounts for multiples. So another, another resource. But I think that I've seen, you know, as I say, Massachusetts, Texas, uh, Mid-Atlantic. So check with your region, too, to see if, you know, if there's a discount within your, your state and local chapter that you might be able to find out some scholarship opportunities. Perfect. Thanks, Beth. Uh, always You're so welcome. excited when we get financial aid advice that touches even we parents of the very young kids. So thanks for coming on. Uh, thanks so much, Ian. Uh, when we come back, we will open up our office hours for the Schools Out app workshop series. Uh, so stick around. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com If you're a parent of a high school student, you've probably heard a lot of scary stories about college admissions, about the growing number of applicants, the shrinking number of spots, about how even valedictorians are being turned away. For families of hopeful college students, it's impossible not to worry. But at College Coach, we take the worry out. Our advisors are former senior admissions and college finance officers from all over the country, so they can give you advice that nobody else can about what classes to take, how to prepare for standardized tests, what options are available to pay for college, and most importantly, what admissions officers are looking for when they read an application. We've got more than 15 years of experience and a track record that's helped every single student get into college, most into their top choice schools. So make the decision to come work with College Coach and start your child down the road to the decision that really matters, the one in the envelope that says yes. Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in. Do the adventures of Indiana Jones leave you curious about this exotic and unusual profession? If so, don't miss Indiana Jones, myth, reality, and 21st century archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. You'll learn about forensics, ancient civilizations, and human origins. Listen to Dr. Schuldenrein and colleagues discuss their excavations and related archaeological topics, ranging from the unique to the sublime, and yes, even the mundane. Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology, live Wednesday, 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. Pacific Time, on Voice America Variety. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Over the last couple of weeks, I've done a handful of mock interviews for my colleagues here at College Coach, and I've started working on interview prep with quite a few of my own students. So I thought it would be a great idea for us to talk a little bit about the college interview on the Schools Out Application Workshop series and how you can prepare to be at your best in an interview, just the kinds of things you you might expect in an interview. So uh, my colleague Zaragoza Guerra, formerly of the MIT and Caltech admissions offices, is here to join the conversation. Uh, and we hope that you'll have questions. You can post them on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash collegecoach 
or you can send us an email at, at gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail. Um, Zaragoza, welcome to the show. Thank you, Ian. I'm glad to be here. Yeah, glad to have you. So interviewing, for me, it was one of my favorite parts of the admissions process when I worked at Reed. Great way to get to know the students. Can you, you know, a lot of students worry about how the interview actually fits into the process. Can you just give us a sort of a flyover of where the interview sort of fits into the application? Sure. I think oftentimes a lot of students might feel a little bit anxious about the interview, thinking, hey, this is going to be my make or break moment within the application process, I think it's probably best to step away from that thought and to see it for what it is. It's it's an opportunity for a student to really convey more information about themselves uh, to an admissions office, to perhaps cover areas that they wanted to speak to on the application but might not necessarily have had enough room. Uh, It's a great way for a student to show an admissions office their personality, how they think on their feet, um, how they interact with others. Uh, And so it is going to be used within the context of an admissions committee, and admission officers absolutely do review an interview report and do take it into consideration. But I wouldn't necessarily say it's going to be the most important part of an application. It's just a way for an admissions office to get a little bit more context on a student, get a feel for who that student is, and perhaps uh, close some gaps in terms of some information uh, that they might have received just solely on the application and, and you know, are, are able to fill in those gaps with other information that they're getting from the interview report. Yeah, I, I remember when I was applying to college, I was sort of like, oh, man, I can't wait for this interview. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to knock it out of the park and get into these schools. And, and, you know, when I got to the admissions office, I saw that, you know, even a great interview wasn't going to make up the difference for a student that probably wasn't going to get in to begin with. Um, and even a sort of subpar or lukewarm interview wasn't going to keep a kid out if they had really great sort of credentials across the board. So, you know, the interview, I think, is really important right at the margins where you're a student that could go either way. Um, and that's a great way to sort of get a sense for who this kid is and what kind of community member they're going to be. Um, did you, when you did interviews, did you have questions that you asked of every student or were you trying to angle for a different kind of conversation with your interview? What, what were you looking for when you sat down to interview a new kid? You know, I never had a set of questions that I would ask every student. And I think the reason for that was because I viewed every interview as a conversation, as a two-way conversation, where I was trying to get to know the student. They were trying to get to know me. And I would let the interview go in the direction that it went. And oftentimes, uh, the reason I did that was because I sometimes felt that, hey, if i am got a student who's really engaging me, I'm going to let them take me where they want to take me in terms yeah. of the story. Um, yeah. And if there's something that picks my interest, hopefully um, I'll be able to talk about it. And uh, part of the reason I did that is because it is a conversation. And, you know, I, I think uh, the beauty of that conversation is that person who is being interviewed is also an interviewee. (laughs) They're not only um, being interviewed, they're also interviewing the school. And it's a good way to find out if this is a person who's going to put other people at ease. And as an interviewer, and you're trying to think of questions uh, constantly, and you're trying to think, okay, what am I going to ask next? There's always something going on in your mind, okay? That person is just as nervous as a person who's being interviewed. And I think if you've got a student who can 
really make an interviewer feel at ease by making the process seem more like a conversation rather than an interview, well, that student's probably going to have a little bit of success and, you know, it's going to leave a stronger impression upon the interviewer. So, right. no, I, I generally let, let the student take me where they wanted to take me, <laughs> uh, so to speak. And, <laughs> For sure. For and, sure. And, and just let, let the interview run its course. Yeah, this is mostly my conversation. Uh, my questions were just probing to try and find something that we could talk about for a long time. Like, I, I it's not about like I'm going to ask you a question, get an answer, take a note, and then write my ask my next question. I'm just looking for something you might get excited by. And I want to learn a little bit. Um, yeah, and I think you identified something that actually is like the difference for me between like a really good interview and a great interview is when the kid engages me as somebody they're interested in talking to. Um, when they're asking questions like, you know, what would, what, you, what's the book that you read recently that you really liked? Or um, what do you think about the possibility of life in other worlds? Or those kinds of things. When they flipped it back and actually showed a genuine curiosity about the subject and what I thought about that subject, there's just a level of maturity and engagement that comes across there that I think is really fun for an interviewer, but also reflects really well on a kid as well. I think it does, and I think it's a wonderful strategy to use for a student because <laughs> you're giving someone else the opportunity to talk while right. other things go on in your wheelhouse and, and in your mind as they're talking. Uh, and you can think of other ways that you want to take the conversation uh, rather than think of it as uh, a means for someone to ask you questions and spend the entire uh, hour or 30 minutes uh, talking yourself. You're giving someone else the, the, the chance to talk. And, and as an interviewer, I found that very comforting, in all honesty, yeah. because, hey, you know, I don't have to think of the next question. They're, right. they're helping me move this conversation along. Right. And, and time goes by faster, and you, just, you come away with a much more enjoyable kind of experience. I, I think that's, that's really important. Now, interviews are conducted by a variety of different groups or stakeholders within an, uh, a college campus. You've, sometimes you've got student workers, sometimes you've got admissions officers who are actually doing the application, deciding, and then sometimes you've got um, alumni who are volunteers that work for the admissions office. Is there any difference in terms of how you might prepare for or approach an interview depending on who's conducting it? I think the main difference would be in essence, the, the kinds of questions that you're going to be asking your interviewer. Um, essentially, if you're talking to an admissions officer, there's a chance that that admissions officer did not attend the school uh, for sure. you know, that, that they're working at. So you might not necessarily ask them about their particular undergraduate experiences because you don't necessarily know that um, to begin with, unless you know, it's explicitly stated beforehand and then you have an idea and you, and you can do that. I think you know, with alums, hey, they're going to be able to talk to you about their own personal experiences. We don't necessarily know how near or far those experiences were to the date that you're having the interview. You know, it could be an alum from 30 years ago or it could be an right. alum who's a lot more recent. So uh, in terms of the kinds of questions that you're going to ask them about campus life, uh, that might not necessarily be support- pertinent. You might be instead asking them about their particular experiences having received an education there and moving off into the world and how it served them, how that education has served them. If you're talking to a current student, hey, they're going to be right there in the heart of it. And so definitely that's your chance to ask them you know, what their particular experiences are. And granted, these are going to be people who've been vetted by the admissions office who are going to have a, a wonderful experience, hopefully, uh, right. one would one would think. If they um, make good choices. Thing. Yeah, about hiring. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Uh, exactly. So, but you can definitely ask them about their own particular experiences on campus right there. You're getting this in real time. 
um, in terms of the information. So I think the preparation might be more in the sense of what you think you might be asking your interviewer in terms of keeping that conversation going. Um, but with respect to, hey, is it going to really make or break you know, my admission if I get an interview with an admissions officer versus an alum versus a student? Not necessarily so. I think oftentimes your interviewer, no matter who he or she is, is essentially probably going to be writing up a report, and that report's going to end up going to committee. And they'll, right. that committee will be reviewing that report, no matter who it's written from. Um, and oftentimes that report is more means to contextualize the, the application or to confirm um, what everyone else was feeling. Um, if there are any red flags, hey, yeah, that might perhaps uh, impact an application. But as you said, it's really ne- going to you know, make or, or break the application. It's only probably on the margins where there's looking for more information. And so they might find some of those nuggets of information from an interview report. Yeah, and I think it's really important to underscore that point about um, the role in the admissions process. So whether it's an AO who's interviewing you or an alumni um, or a student, the interview report is roughly treated as being just as important no matter who conducts the interview, right? The admissions office is deciding we care about the opinion of the person who we've charged to give this interview on par with everyone else. So, you know, I sometimes have students that are like, well, I'm not interviewing with an admissions officer, so how important can it be? Or I am interviewing with an admissions officer, and so I'm going to take this really seriously. And I think you want to take it seriously regardless of who's conducting it um, because it plays the same role in the process. Um, Exactly. And and keep in mind, just because you're interviewing with an admissions officer doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to have that same admissions officer in your admissions committee when your application comes. It could be a different set of people, and so you're you're just going by by the admissions report. And and students can have just as strong uh, say in an admissions process as an admissions officer. I, uh, you know, worked for two schools that happened to have students in the admissions committees, and students read applications. Um, yeah. Current students read applications, we and you know, we're involved in the process. So. Right, right. And that perspective is, is really valuable. So don't sort of underestimate the person who's interviewing you. They're doing it for a reason. Um, I, I want to ask you just a question about attire. I think I get this question from just about everybody. What should I wear? Um, <laughs> how do I, you know, what should I show up uh, wearing or what should my decor be or just what's my attitude? And um, there are differences, uh, you know, in parts of the country and, and you know, uh, schools that you're interviewing for. What's your recommendation for students on this question of what to wear to an interview? Sure. Hot pants and Birkenstocks, no matter where. <laughs> um, <laughs> that would work in the Northwest. <laughs> exactly. Um, actually, I, I would say this. You know, coming, there are going to be some differences in, in terms of dress. I don't think it's going to hurt you in any way, shape, or form by calling the admissions office and getting some hints, saying, hey, coming in for an interview, is there a particular dress code? They'll be right. honest with you. They probably get that question all the time. Uh, in general, generally speaking, I don't think anyone necessarily needs to wear a suit in any way, shape, or form. Um, yeah. it, it's mostly a matter of, you know, dressing in a way that's not necessarily going to take away from the interview. In other words, you want them talking about you and your conversation rather than, let's say, what you were wearing. So, you know, dressing smart, casual is perfectly fine, and I think that's going to be acceptable probably at most places. You might have some other places where, hey, smart, casual might be too conservative (laughs) for the school, uh, or prepping might be too conservative for the school, even if it is casual in the sense that, you know, try to figure out what the school is, what the vibe is for the school, and there are going to be some 
uh, attire that's going to be more appropriate for one school over another. But in general, it's not a formal formal event. I don't think you need to wear a suit and tie. I don't think you even need to wear a jacket, no matter where you go. Um, yeah. But, you know, just try to make sure that whatever it is that you're wearing is not necessarily going to be the topic of the conversation when you leave right. the room. And you might take some cues for an off-campus interview, take some cues for where the interview is, right? If it's at the law offices of the alumnus who's interviewing you, you might dress a little bit differently than if it's at your local coffee shop. So just, you know, be smart about those kinds of things, and I think that you'll be well-prepared. Um, all right, we've got one minute left, and, and I, we each of us have a homework assignment for our listeners. Mine is for students to go to the admissions websites for schools on your list, find the information about interviews, and add it to the spreadsheets you've developed from previous week's homework. So figure out whether interviews are available on campus or off, how you would request an interview, um, and and put that all into your spreadsheet so that you can request them and set dates into the fall. Um, and Zaragoza, what's your homework assignment for our listeners uh, on interviews? Sure. So in the spirit of a college interview being a two-way street where it's a conversation, a means to give information to a college about yourself as well as receive information from the, about the college. I'd like uh, people who are doing the homework to write five questions they'd at, like to ask a prospective university interviewer that convey in the question's articulation that, one, you've done your research on your prospective school and are clued in as to its specific offerings, and two, those offerings are important to you and it picked your interest and therefore you'd like to learn more about them. So in other words, ask questions that are going to tell your interviewer that you know a bit about the school. You just want to know a little bit more. Perfect. Zaragoza, thanks for coming aboard the show today and helping our, our listeners better understand the interview process. I appreciate it. You're welcome. Great. Folks, uh, that is a wrap on our Schools Out application series, not just for today, but for good. Next week, we'll be launching the Schools In application workshop series. Same idea, different name, school starting next week, and we want to sort of coincide with that. Uh, Sally Ganga will be hosting the show and will help propel you through the next step of your college applications. We'll also be welcoming Lauren Randall back to the show to discuss the IB, and Shannon Vasconcelos will be on to discuss financial aid for students from divorced households. Lots of great information as always. Thanks again to all my guests for their time and expertise. Have a great weekend. Enjoy the last few days where you're able to wear white, and we'll see you back here in September. Take care of yourselves and each other. Thank you for tuning in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. Please join us again next Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.